With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 33rd episode of my show. I use my show to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And, of course, you can subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. A special hello to my listeners in Ireland. I'm so appreciative of the thousands of you who listen to my show. And also, a special thanks to today to Scotland, which is not far behind Ireland in numbers of listeners, Hong Kong, China, Vietnam, the Netherlands, and Singapore. I want to thank you, too. And, of course, thanks to all of my listeners worldwide tuning in, including my many listeners, thousands of listeners here in the U.S. And, you know, I'm really pleasantly surprised to see so many listeners in Milford, Iowa, which is right up by Lake Okaboji. That's really awesome. So I had some listeners ask me where I get my numbers from that shows me where people are listening from. Well, these numbers are determined by those who listen at the Voice America Business website. And basically, they're showing how many people from different um, parts of your IP address that are associated with your IP address are listening in. So these numbers don't include all those apps that I listed earlier that you can also listen through. Now, one of those days, I'll check those out. Also, please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Now, note, I'm currently doing a complete overhaul of my Privacy Guidance site, so it will be looking very different and much better soon. My 21-year-old son just recently joined my business, and he's going to be doing this website facelift for me and he is very talented so thank you very much Noah for doing that if you're interested in being a sponsor or an advertiser for my radio show please also get in touch I have on my bucket list visiting all seven continents and I have two to go Africa and Antarctica so if any of you are from Africa or close to Antarctica and need help with information security or privacy get in touch thanks also for all of your questions you're sending me I'm behind on answering them and I apologize for that but I will get to them and I do appreciate you sending them in My September Privacy Professor Tips message was published in late August. 
Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've always provided them for free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email. Let me know who is your privacy hero. It can be at your work or it can be in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. So today, this episode is first airing on September 11. And September 11 of 2018 is the 17th anniversary of the attacks against the U.S. that brought down the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, took out a significant portion of the Pentagon by Washington, D.C., and as a result of passengers on another plane uh, who stopped the hijackers, that plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. And all of that resulted in 3,000, around 3,000 total deaths that day with over 6,000 others injured on that day. And since that time, there have been over 33,000 police officers and firefighters, responders, and community members who have been treated for injuries and sicknesses related to the 9-11 attacks, including such things as respiratory conditions and mental health problems like like PTSD and depression, uh, various other problems, and at least 4,166 cases of cancer. Now, scammers are commonly using this tragedy to their benefit, and some scams are specifically telling lies, indicating that they're collecting money for 9-11 survivors or for memorials or some other type of activity. But in the 17 years since the attack, often the numbers of all types of phishing attempts increased dramatically around this time because the scammers see this as a time when people's guards are down and they see that they're participating in various types of memorials and other types of activities. For example, in 2016, Crooks used the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, and they tried to scan consumers in the New York metropolitan area by using spoofed caller IDs. Now, they have done this in many types of scams almost every year since 2001. They also send emails and they also send text messages trying to trick you and to to fool you into giving them your personal data and your credit card information. So my tip of the week relates to these types of scams. Be very skeptical of calls, texts, emails, and other communications that indicate that they are collecting money for memorials. Never give your personal information or payment information to any unsolicited caller. Let the callers know that you simply do not give your personal data or credit card information to unsolicited callers and then simply hang up. And then, um, you know, if, if you want to take that extra step, then I urge you to report the call to the FTC. 
So today, I'm continuing with my series of voting and elections security shows. Now, in today's Internet of Everything, with many nation states wanting to impact the elections in the United States, you know, our intelligence agencies have confirmed such attempts from Russia, and now we're hearing about from Iran, and also about attempts being made to disrupt elections in other countries as well. With increasingly more digitized election systems, with many voting systems being completely digital now, and parts of the elections process taking place through the internet, such as voter registration, and this fall for the elections, West Virginia is going to use a voting app called Votes, V-O-A-T-Z, for providing voting capabilities to their military personnel who are stationed overseas. So there are many understandable and legitimate concerns about the security of our voting processes. And yes, there are also many efforts taking place online to impact elections through propaganda and conspiracy theories being widespread. And certainly that's another issue. But today I'm going to focus on the systems, applications, and data security risk of the voting systems themselves. Now this episode is first airing on September 11, but... We're recording it on August 24th, so I can only imagine all the voting security news that's going to be aired between now and September 11. But here are just a few of the many voting and election security topics that are currently in the news today. So um, this month, there was a big hacking and security conference held in Las Vegas called DEFCON. Very popular, held every year, and it's been held for many years. And there was a hacking event that was provided because there's always, you know, the people who attend, they have a lot of kids. So they had a hacking event to see if the kids, some as young as seven, could hack into replicas of the types of voting systems that were actually used in the 2016 elections. Now, these replicas included the same types of vulnerabilities that were identified in those voting systems that were used then. From the reports, many to most of the kids were successful in hacking into those replica voting systems. Now, also this month in August, the Department of Homeland Security reported that as of August 17, 36 states had installed an intrusion detection system of sensors that they call ALBERT. And it really was kind of surprising to me in some ways that such intrusion detection systems weren't already being used. I mean, intrusion detection systems are something that, you know, I've been working with with all my clients for for many years now. And then also something that despite very many security risks that are involved in an increasingly complex and expanding set of voting and election systems um, on August 23rd, it was reported that a bipartisan bill 
that had wide congressional support called the Secure Elections Act uh, that was meant to significantly strengthen the, the nation's security protections against election interference. It was reported that it was killed in Senate uh, at the request of the White House, which indicated that they opposed the proposed legislation. Uh, at least that's what a lot of the members of Congress in both major parties were reporting. Um, so, you know, it, it's still early as of the point in time that we're recording this show, but it will be interesting to see what happens there. So we know through much evidence that our voting and election systems are being continually hacked um, or attacked, at least. We don't know how many have actually been successful. Thank goodness we know uh, that there hasn't been many, but still, the attacks are happening. Um, and it's been going on since at least 2015 and likely before. And we know that the wide range of voting and election systems that are being used throughout all of the states have numerous assorted data security risks. So what are some of those significant risks? Well, I have the perfect person to speak with today about this. Marion Schneider is the president of Verified Voting. Now, Marion has a strong grounding in the legal and constitutional elements governing voting rights and elections, as well as experience in election administration at the state level. Immediately before becoming president of Verified Voting, Marion served as special advisor to Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe on election policy. Previously, Governor Wolf appointed Marion as the Deputy Secretary for Elections and Administration in the Pennsylvania Department of State, where she served from February 2015 until May 2017. Now, under Marion's leadership, the department launched Pennsylvania's online voter registration application, where there have been more than 950,000 Pennsylvania voters who have used the application to register or update the registration. Marion has also championed membership in the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC for short, and served as the first Pennsylvania member of the ERIC Board of Directors. Marion also has served as Pennsylvania State Election Official on EAC's Standards Board, and on the Pennsylvania Advisory Committee on Voting Technology to the Joint State Government Commission. You can see so much more information about Marion and her accomplishments and experience at verifiedvoting.org under her team page. Marion, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a timely topic. It's coming right up here on elections, and uh, there's just so much to consider based upon what we're hearing in the news. But first, I, I'm really curious about um, some of your experience. You know, in the intro, we talked about you being the deputy, deputy secretary for elections and administration in Pennsylvania for the Department of State and how you launched the online voter registration application. Um, and also numerous reforms uh, that were related to usability and public access. So in this role, 
What kind of security and privacy vulnerability and threats did you observe or were you worried about and wanted to address? Well, I mean, first of all, Pennsylvania is a a large state and uh, their IT assets are run by a centralized agency and they have you know, resources that they dedicate towards protecting those. So, you know, an an online voter registration application is like any other web-facing service that a large government entity like the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania provides. And, you know, it was protected by the same kinds of protections that, you know, protect the Department of Revenue or the uh, agents, you know, the what we call um, health and human services equivalent in Pennsylvania. And so I think that there are, you know, there are always risks associated with certain transactions that we do online. And I think there are states that do a good job at, at as best as they can at securing those risks. I th- one of the themes that I think we're probably going to touch on during this conversation is that, Cybersecurity has changed from preventing attacks to the recognition that you can't prevent all attacks. You can never get your risk of attack down to zero. So the approach has to be monitor, detect, respond, and recover. And that applies to all of the assets in the ecosystem, including online voter registration, um, the voter registration database, and the voting machines that voters use. Well, and, you know, with the last election, we know that Russian hackers and and possibly other hackers from other nation states, that they were attacking the different states. And they were were seeing what they could do to get into some of the states. And, you know, under um, our our system, why each state is responsible for their own security and their systems, right? But... We, we heard that Homeland Security Undersecretary Jeanette Manfra um, testified that Illinois and Arizona computer systems were successfully penetrated. And I think a lot of our listeners might wonder, you know, what type of impacts can occur by inappropriately changing uh, voter registration database information if those systems are not secured appropriately? Well, if if somebody were to get through the defenses, and and this goes back to the monitor, detect, respond, and recover approach, mm-hmm. because if you're if you keep if you're monitoring and you're checking and you're making sure that nobody is um, interfering with your voter registration database, if you detect something, then you can address it beforehand. But on in the event that a voter registration database was breached and and an attacker changed things. And then on election day, especially in a state that has, uh, whose voters primarily go to the polls, go to a precinct or a polling place to vote, mm-hmm. then that could cause a lot of confusion at the polls. People, peop, for example, somebody might change an address, somebody's address, and they would show up at their polling place and they wouldn't be in the poll book and then they would not be able to vote a regular, regularly and they would might have to vote a provisional ballot and that takes time. Mm-hmm. And if there are a lot of people that have to use a provisional ballot, then that could create long lines and possibly disenfranchise voters. So it's just what that kind of attack could do is cause chaos on election day. 
But, uh, you know, again, um, it just underscores the need to be constantly monitoring your system, spot checking it to make sure that things are not being changed or um, altered and to... Uh, be to have the ability to respond if you d- respond and respond quickly in case um, in case something happens and the, and the response is being able to bring up a backup very rapidly you know to to be able to go back to the uh, a cop a clean copy or an unaltered copy in a very short period of time. Well, and it kind of reminds me, too, of the intrusion detection. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the beginning, we were talking about how 36 states took up the Department of Homeland Security's offer to provide them with intrusion detection systems. But I'm wondering, 36 took them up. So, you know, that leaves the rest of the 50. And then we have the, the territories. Uh, do you think those others who didn't take them up on that offer already have intrusion detection in place? Or, um, you know, I know that it's just a, a pure opinion, but as you you're describing this. I'm wondering why everyone didn't take them up on that offer unless they perhaps already had intrusion detection systems in place. Well, it's very possible that they did. I'm sure. I know Pennsylvania certainly had monitored its traffic. Um, it's certainly its internet access traffic and its web traffic traffic very carefully. I know that they had very strong IT policies around cybersecurity. I know they had a lot of cybersecurity training. I think that it's, I think what's really important to know though is that elections are administered differently in every state and there, it really, it really does vary. So in Pennsylvania, the Department of State is under the governor's jurisdiction, which allows it to draw on all the resources of the entire administration. In other states, the Secretary of State is elected and may have their own budget and own staff that is separate from the governor's jurisdiction, and that can play into what resources are available. There may be, and I'm not a uh, an expert in in how this works in every single state, but it could be that even though the Secretary of State is elected separately, they may still fall under the governor's jurisdiction and still have access to those resources. So I think, um, you know, um, I think that the Albert sensors are. I'm glad that they're being provided. I think they're being provided at no cost to the states, mm-hmm. but I think they're one tool in toolbox. And I don't mm-hmm. think any any cybersecurity expert would tell you that one thing is a magic bullet. They always talk about a multi-layered approach, and I think that's probably what the Albert sensors are. And and for states that didn't take them, you know, I I really can't speak to why they wouldn't. It seems to me, if somebody is offering mm-hmm. you another tool in toolbox and it's free. Uh, why not use it? But uh, oh yeah, yeah. So I, uh, um, but again, there it's it. It's, I'm sure states had. I'm sure states had other methods um, involved. I, I just want to give you an example. A couple of years ago, and it may have been as far back as 2012. I I don't remember the year, but the um, the Department of Revenue in the state of South Carolina was breached. And I believe that was when Nikki Haley was the governor. And that was a huge deal. And it got a lot of mm-hmm. press. And there was personally identifying information that was taken from the Department of Revenue's website. And um, so I 
think people need to understand that state governments understand not only the political consequences, but the you know terrible PR consequences of having their uh, systems breached. So I do think that that is something that government officials are aware of and are working towards preventing to the extent they can, knowing that we can't get the risk down to zero, but but that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, try to prevent everything that you can. So I, I don't think that I, I don't want anyone to get the impression that people are not taking the the risk of an intrusion of a database seriously. They, I think they are. Yeah, it's just so complex. I mean, you know, I've been working in this area um, throughout my adult life, and you're right. I mean, you have to have many layers of security, and it's not just technology security, Mm -hmm. but it's also human security, knowledge and training and all that. And then you have the physical access to uh, the systems as well. So the more complex we have with our technology, just the more pathways we have uh, potentially into these systems. So I think I think that's right. It's really interesting. And, you know, we're coming up on a break here in a a few minutes, but um, just talking about the technology and also about how you need different layers. I noticed the phishing. Phishing attacks fascinate me and ransomware because... You know, they they take advantage of the human vulnerabilities in order to get in and exploit the technical vulnerabilities, and then uh, it can cause physical problems, too, depending upon what type of industry you're in. But, um, you know, that's something I think a lot of organizations need to deal with as well. Well, phishing attacks are one of the most successful attacks, but you can you can defend against them. One, by having people know what they look like and how to spot them and then having a clearly communicated plan for what to do when somebody spots a phishing email. And then the second thing is to restrict your administrative privilege access. And I think that is one of the most important things, making sure that not everybody has administrative administrator level access because that's what a phishing attack is trying to do. It's trying to get the, trying to get to the credentials of uh, somebody who has administrative access. So if you really crack down on that, it makes a phishing attack less successful in the end. Yes, yes. And too many organizations, especially when we're thinking of, you know, voting and election systems, we have such a, a variety of um, places where we do all these votings uh voting systems and have elections and polling and different people have different levels of capability so they might not be able to identify these but you know we're coming up on a quick break and when we come back I want to continue our conversation because then you know we can dig into some of these voting system uh, vulnerabilities so so thank you Marion so far for our discussion but now it's time for a quick break to hear from some of our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. We're speaking today about the security of voting and election systems with Marion Schneider, president of Verified Voting. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email address, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuide. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We're speaking today about the security of voting and election systems with Marion Schneider, president of Verified Voting. So let's continue our discussion. And I want to quickly, before we dive into the voting system security issues, you know, some lawmakers, such as recently Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, uh, there's some claims out there that voter fraud um, is, and this is a quote from him during some testimony, an exponentially greater threat than hacking to the U.S. election system. But, you know, from my research and from the research of many others, um, it seems like fraud is a very tiny occurrence within elections, but the attempts to compromising and hacking into voting systems and applications and data is increasing. So what are you finding, Marion, with regard to hacking attempts versus voting fraud? Well, the voter fraud, I mean, first of all, you have to define what that is. It's not really within verified voting scope um, to deal with that kind of voter fraud. But I will say from my earlier experience in, in many other capacities, the only studies, there's a, there's one very comprehensive study that was done relating to prosecutions for voter fraud, and they found that it was exceedingly rare when you compare uh, the number of prosecutions with the number of ballots that have been cast. And it seems that there's always um, some, 
high profile cases that get repeated over and over again. But the bottom line is that those those types of uh, in activities are, are very rare. And we should really talk about what we mean voter fraud as impersonating someone at the polling place, you know, pretending to be somebody else or registering um, fraudulently. That, those, that, that's what we're talking about there. And it does not occur uh, with any regularity in, in my experience. But again, that's really outside of the scope of verified voting, which we're much more, much more mm-hmm. concerned um, with how, uh, how fraudsters might interfere with our elections. And there's, a, there's this concept that used to, they used to talk about a lot, and it was, it was called retail fraud versus wholesale fraud, and that when you talk about impersonating, impersonating somebody at the polling place, you would have to have an enormous conspiracy of a lot of people who would go to the polling place and try to vote fraudulently, whereas with a voting system, you could one person could change the outcome of an entire county if they wanted to and or multiple counties and and in a national election might be able to change the outcome of the national election so there's a really a huge degree of difference between the two types of activities yes yeah i'm glad you pointed out um the the necessary effort really to carry out widespread fraud versus like you said one person hacking in and and changing a lot of things uh, possibly from a remote area you know right. so so what are the primary security vulnerabilities that you and your organization have identified with uh, voting systems and software and technology that's currently being used by states and territories so, uh, you know, mo- 99% of the votes in America are counted by computers. And so they are, there's nothing special about these computers. They um, are, you know, they're, a lot of them are Windows based. Um, and there's two components to voting system, the device that voters actually use at the polling place. And then there's a computer at the county or somewhere else that's used to program each of those devices. And they have all of the same risk and vulnerabilities as your own desktop and laptop um, do. Now, they should not be connected to any network. They should never be connected to the Internet, but they shouldn't even be connected to an internal network to, to uh, remove that pathway. But... Um, some of the older system, and I say older because they were deployed in 2005 and 2006, there have been multiple studies that show that they are vulnerable to specific kinds of attacks. And so the the real issue is not that they're vulnerable, because I think everybody can agree, and certainly cybersecurity experts agree, is that computers are vulnerable, mm-hmm. period. Um, but we should be focusing on knowing they're vulnerable, how do we mitigate the risk? How do we get it as close to zero as possible? And how do we recover from that? And the way we do that is by having a voting system that incorporates a voter marked paper ballot and then retains the paper record for recounts and audits. So we get to leverage the speed of the computer in tabulating the votes, but then we have a record that we can look to and spot check and make sure the software that counted the votes is doing its job properly. And in America, we have, I would say 70% of the states have some kind of a paper record. the the problem is that in those other thirty percent, they can that can be really impactful within the states where the they don't have paper records, and so that vulnerability has to be solved. And there's a low tech solution, as I mentioned, voter mark paper ballots, and then routine 
post-election audits that are done in a, a rigorous mathematical way that check the way the software operates. And so that's what verified voting is advocating for. And, you know, we're making a lot of progress and we're helping a lot of election officials try to implement the audit piece because it's not, in, it's not, it's a one-two punch, right? It's not enough just to have paper. You have to look at the paper later mm-hmm. to, to, as a spot check. So you're making a lot of progress, I guess. Can you expand upon that? Like, are you yes. providing audit uh, programs for them to use or yeah explain more about that right so we so we're a non-profit non-partisan and we are educational non-profit and but the concept of uh, statistically rigorous audits what are we that concept was developed by uh, two of our board members Philip Stark and Ron Rivest and then our one of my staff members, Mark Lindemann, has also been was an early um, academic who did some of the seminal papers on this method of audit. So what we have been doing, what we're trying to do is explain them to election officials and then actually helping them implement them. So in the beginning of August, um, Mark Lindemann and another staffer, John McCarthy, worked with the city of Fairfax to show them how to do it in a pilot and we um mark did a lot of work in um he actually wrote some code to help to help them see how this would work and we spent two days in the city of fairfax and showed them how a risk limiting audit would work using the actual ballots from they had a small they had a um primary in June in the city of Fairfax for the U.S. Senate. And so we used those ballots and it was very successful. And there were a lot of uh, registrars and election officials in the audience. And they thought, yeah, we could do this because it, you know, when people, when you try to explain the mathematics to people, it kind of like you get eyes glazing over, but when you show them how to do it, it's not so bad, and we were able to dem- we were able to project everything up on a screen so they could see exactly what was happening, and it was really good. So then, when you describe a risk limiting audit, does that mean that you're taking like a statistically accurate sample uh, of the total votes and then looking at that subset um, to determine, you know, if there's any irregularities? Yeah, right. So what? So what a risk-limiting audit means is that it has a predetermined risk level. You set the risk level in advance. So, um, and you're taking a random sample of the ballots in the race, right? So whatever race it is, maybe it's U.S. Senate, maybe it's a congressional race, maybe it's a county commissioner race, but the universe of ballots that you're sampling are all of the validly cast ballots in that contest or race. Mm-hmm. And then you... Um, there's an algorithm. It's already been worked out, and the data points are put put into the algorithm, and it tells you how many ballots you need to sample. And then they use this, what they call a pseudo-random number generator to figure out which ballots need to be pulled. And you can do a couple of different ways. You can um, the new technology is able to. Prov- I, well, I'm getting down into the weeds, but this lets suffice it to say that the point is. You take a random sample of ballots and you examine them manually. You have to look at the actual ballots, not digital images, not software driven, but you have to actually look at the ballots 
and compare them to the results to make sure that the software did their job correctly. Okay. And then that subset, uh, the, the sample, right. that that percentage of total, that probably varies depending upon the risk for that particular precinct then, I'm assuming. Actually, what the biggest determinant is the margin of victory. So the closer oh. the, ra- the closer the race is, the more ballots you have to sample. The farther apart the parties are, the, the candidates are, the fewer ballots you have to sample. Okay, well, that makes sense. Right. And so what, that, what a risk-limiting audit will do is... It, at some point, a race will be too close, and in order to really confirm the results, you, you might have to do a full hand recount, but those would be rare. Those races would have to be very close. Mm-hmm. Even I, I don't know if you remember, there was a special election in, uh, I believe it was Alabama earlier this year, mm-hmm. and that was a statewide race, and it was very close. Um, but I do think that the margin was in the tens of thousands of ballots. And for the entire state of Alabama, I think that the number of ballots that would have had to have been sampled was only a couple of hundred. Even, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of ballots that were cast. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a very, it can be a very efficient way of doing an audit. So the, the effort is to move states towards doing the most efficient audits as possible or even doing them at all because some states have no audit laws and some states use just a flat percentage rate and some of them do it at the precinct rather than doing the contest. And so making sure that we're, you know, sampling the right universe and then sampling it in a way that will be, that will give us information about whether the tabulation was done correctly, that's the goal. Well, and that seems very logical, and it makes sense, and I think so many times I hear people when they say, oh, we can't wait to, you know, an audit is too time-consuming, you can't look through every ballot, and of course, I think everybody thinks of at least who's old enough to to remember the hanging chats (laughs) stuff, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you're looking at every single thing, but I I really like how uh, you're talking about using a statistically valid subset sample uh, to look at so that that's really cool I'm, I'm going to definitely go to your site and, and look more at that because that's something I definitely have an interest in I know a lot of my listeners do too um, and we're trying to revamp that part of the site so look for and <laughs> look look for new and improved uh, information on risk limiting audits on our website coming soon hopefully in okay. September <laughs> yeah kind of like what I described with my site so we're right. all uh, changing our sites you know Another thing I found on your site that I, I really found interesting was uh, that you, we had the vulnerabilities being shown of paperless voting systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought that was a very enlightening video. And, you know, how J. Alex Halderman showed how easily, fairly easily, it was to hack certain types of systems. What kind of feedback did you get from? The public on that, uh, if any, I would think would have. No, oh yeah, well that that was very well received. Uh, first of all, that video um, was done by the New York Times, and Alex Halderman is who is a professor at Michigan was serving uh, as our technology fellow during his sabbatical year, and um, he he had. Uh, he was replicating uh, the code that they had created 10 years ago to hack into those machines. And so we supported yeah. that effort to show that it can be done. Now, um, I, I think that I think the value of the video was that it, it was a really 
good visual of how this could happen. And, um, and I think that what we learned from the 2016 election cycle, and of course we've had, so, you know, many states have had elections since then, um, that it's no longer theoretical. There's actually a bad actor out there who has the resources, if they want to, <laughs> to interfere with our elections in a dis- very disruptive way. And so that's why we have to put into place processes that allow us to detect that something has occurred and to recover if it has. And that's why you have to combine the low tech with the high tech, you know, leverage computer resources to make life easier, but have the ability to check it because nothing we we know, we know computers are vulnerable. How many times, you know, how many times have you had a software, you need a software update or there's a bug that has to be corrected. It happens. Um, So, um, I think um, we we got a, a lot of great feedback from that, but we need to move on from okay, there's we we that there's a problem, and now we need to implement the steps that will allow us to be prepared in case something happens. Yes, throughout the entire life cycle. I like how you're talking about being prepared for the inevitable when something happens. So you do have a fallback so uh, you don't lose everything or have to do a a do-over, which um, (laughs) talk about that would be, you know, very, very uh, stressful for a lot of states to do. So do states contact um, your organization to get assistance with improving the security of their systems or the, or for the vulnerabilities that that they're seeing highlighted well they that has happened in the past and and we're seeing more interest in the audit piece of it now but hmm. one big example is a year ago you were, you mentioned defcon earlier in your introduction hmm. um, a year ago after the defcon voting village the um, the Commonwealth of Virginia decided that they were going to decertify the rest of their paperless machines. And they did reach out to verified voting for assistance and gathering some of the reports, some of the reported vulnerabilities to see if they could replicate them internally. Um, and so we were a partner with uh, the the then uh, commissioner of elections and the deputy commissioner of elections and helping them um, replicate the problems for their board of elections so that they decertified them before the 2017 election. Virginia had a gubernatorial election that year. So um, they had 22 localities had to replace their voting systems within 60 days of the election and they did it. And, you know, it's not ideal, but they did it. <laughs> and it's, yeah. So it's doable. It's doable. And they had that, that paper record that they could rely on if necessary. And there were quite a few recounts in Virginia after that election cycle because I think they're legislative. there were legislative races as well. You know, that's scary that I think you, on your site you report that there's five states that are completely digital yes. right now. Right. So. Yes. Well, what do they do? I mean, what happens when somebody discovers that, uh-oh, you know, we had somebody that hacked into it or our our data has been corrupted? Oh. Uh, what can they do then? Do they have to just go back because you have nothing uh, to look at? And, and how do they audit? Or is it impossible to audit when you just simply don't have the, the paper documentation to, to look at? Well, you're correct. There's no meaningful way to audit. And in fact, the National Institute of Standards and Technology actually 
researched whether there was a the ability to do an audit on what these computers, which are called direct recording electronic voting machines, the paperless ones, and they said there is no way to do a meaningful audit and you need to have a device that incorporates a paper ballot for an audit. But let's make sure that your listeners understand these are risks, not certainties. So even though these computers may be at risk, they require special handling. And you talked about this earlier about physical access, making sure that um, the way they're programmed and how the the files are loaded into the systems are, is done in a secure matter, manner, that there's a robust chain of custody throughout. We know how to handle, we know how to handle physical evidence. We do it every day in the criminal justice system. Those same processes need to apply to voting systems. So even though there is no recovery, if something were to happen, you can prevent it as much as possible. But I will say that the huge design flaw in these devices is that it's very hard to detect if anything did happen. So it would be very unlikely, except in, in rare circumstances, to even be able to detect that something went wrong. And if it was just something of a corrupt memory, there, like one removable memory was corrupt or something like that, they do have redundant memory in them. So that is a piece that could be recovered. But what can't be recovered if something interferes with the voter's choice before it gets written to the memory. That's that's the part that we're concerned about. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about like in financial systems and in mm-hmm. healthcare systems, mm-hmm. there's so much logging. I mean, there's a lot of logging to say, here's when somebody did something. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying that these systems that don't have the paper uh, to audit against, that they might not be doing enough logging to be able to even tell uh, if something inappropriate was going on. Um, it's not, it's not as robust as you would want to see. It's probably not as robust as we see in more modern systems. There is some event logging, but, but it doesn't matter, right? Because, um, if somebody is going to insert malware, they can adjust the audit logs. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that, that's the real kicker. Whatever can be acted on by software is vulnerable, And that's why paper, there are vulnerabilities with paper, don't get me wrong, but as I said, we know how to deal with physical evidence, but the paper itself cannot be altered by software, and that's what makes it a valuable check on the software process. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, another vulnerability, I mean, I was alarmed when I started looking at how people who are overseas are, um, you know, submitting their ballots. And I was alarmed to see so many states allowing email and fax transmissions for returning overseas ballots. Um, have you, Does your organization, have you looked at the security threats and vulnerabilities about those types of methods as well? Oh, oh yes. Verified voting does not support any transmission of voted materials over the Internet. And that includes... The internet, people don't understand, that includes even like a web portal or email or fax. Most faxes now are not over the phone lines, they're over the internet. Um, so any any voted materials that's transmitted that way, that, that just increases the surface area for attack. Uh, anybody in the, any part of the world could attack it. 
you have no idea about the, the the device that the voter is using. There could be malware already residing on that computer. Mm-hmm. Talk about phishing attacks. There could be a spoofed site that they send their ballots to that are then altered and then sent on to the real site. I mean, there's just so many ways of interfering with the transmission. Um, there are quite a few states, uh, unfortunately, quite a few states who have deployed um electronic transmission of ballots there's four states allow some voters to return ballots using a portal 20 states plus the district district of columbia allows some voters to return ballots via email or fax um but there's 19 states that don't have any electronic transmission at all and i'm proud to say pennsylvania is one of them (laughs) yeah Um, but in 2018 alaska announced that it's not going to accept completed ballots from any absentee voter via its web portal because of security concerns i believe there's something maybe announced in washington state along the same lines i I mean i think that uh i I do there's always this tension between making voting more convenient and, and easier, and, pe- and, we, and people see that the internet or electronic methods of doing things are used so frequently. But mm-hmm. what they fail to understand is that the voting transaction is a very complex security transaction because not only do we have to authenticate the voter and make sure they are who they say they are, and then once they do establish their identity, then we strip their identity away from their voted ballot. So it's anonymous and private, although you really can't do that in electronic voting. Mm-hmm. And that that presents an enormous security because I don't the voter won't have really won't have a record or a way to track back how they voted, and that makes it impossible to audit using mm-hmm. an electronic voting system. Oh. So uh, it's not like Amazon. If my son takes my credit card and goes on Amazon and buys something, Amazon doesn't care, right? Right, I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> they just care if they have the card and uh, and that uh, the number's there and the, the, the CVV code or whatever that is, if, as long as that's all there, they're good. Uh, that's well, a lot different than the voting transaction. Uh, I wish I could talk with you for another couple of hours, but we're already yeah. <laughs> here at the end of the, the hour. So I guess in the last minute, uh, what do you want to leave listeners with today about voting and election security in general? Well, I just think it's very important to note that the security of our election should be a very high priority for all levels of government. It is not a political issue. This is a national security issue. That's what was demonstrated in the 2016 election. And there are various components that make up our electoral system, and each one of them has its own risks and vulnerabilities, and each of them needs to be protected. And Verified Voting is one of the organizations that have been calling attention to this for a long time. And after 2016, these Points are fi- our, fo- our points are finally starting to resonate. But again, we have to monitor, detect, respond, and recover. And um, we have to make sure that um, for when we protect our votes, that we're using a multi-layered approach that aligns with that. And um, that's why we advocate for paper ballots and risk-limiting audits. But I, I think that the other thing that we can achieve consensus on is that our elections are woefully underfunded. We are using high-tech means to count our ballots, and that requires resources to make sure that that is deployed as safely as possible. And so I think that the one thing that your listeners can do is call on Congress and their state governments to properly and adequately fund elections. Because 
without the resources, I and mean, Congress needs to allocate money to replace the paperless machines, and they need to give money to states to protect their databases and train their poll workers and train their election officials and hire security personnel. And this takes this takes, takes money. Funds. But Definitely takes funds. Well, thank you so much. You know, I I hate to cut you off, but we're coming up right here at a hard stop. So um, I think you've given us so much great information. And um, everyone listening, you can go out to verifiedvoting.org and see more information. So uh, thank you, Marion, for being on my show today. Thank you for having me. So today I've been chatting about security of voting and election systems with Marion Schneider, president of Verified Voting. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Uh, you you can always listen to all of my shows on the recordings. If you can't make the scheduled original time, I urge all of you to stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities and also as you encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured or potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for and your government officials, as Marion indicated earlier, if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com.